Well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen. It is good to see you again, and welcome back to Closing Arguments. I am your moderator, Ryan Ruff. It's great to be back with everybody here on the show today. And as always, I'm joined by my right-hand man, truly the star of our show, if you will, and that's Mr. John Razumich, or Jack Razumich, as many know him by, from Razumich and Associates. And today, we have a great episode uh, that's tuned up for you guys. It's one that Jack has been very much looking forward to sitting down and going through with me, and uh, so much so that we've got a lot to cover today let's just put it that way so before we set the scene if anything let's go ahead and welcome on the man of the hour jack it's good to see you today how you doing sir yeah you're you're not wrong this one's definitely outside of our normal pattern with the way that we talk about this but this is one of those cases that is going on right now and it's one of those things that everyone else is talking about it so why shouldn't we at this point Sure, sure. And and Jack, you know, this is a first for us on the show of moving through something that's ongoing. I mean, a lot of the time our, when we go into our case studies, it's, you know, things from the past experiences that you and your team have moved through, you know, big court cases that you've, you know, fought for with your defendants. But today, yeah, we're going to get into an ongoing case. So why don't you, why don't you set the scene for us? Like it's a crime novel, if you will, uh, share with us kind of the introduction, the background on this case in the first place and where it stems from and how, uh, how it all got started. This case is probably one of the most infamous things to come out of Indiana since Dillinger escaped from the Crown Point jail with a with a gun made out of soap almost a century ago at this point in time. This case has received international attention since it happened in February 2017. There are other true crime podcasts that legitimately have focused on this case. It has its own Wikipedia page. It has its own subreddit. This case has managed to make it to the front page of the internet. And the case that we're referring to that we're going to be talking about, certainly at least today and possibly on the next episode as well, is the case of State of Indiana versus Richard Allen. This is a murder case, undeniably. This is an incredibly tragic situation. This is not anything that we're using for entertainment purposes. This is an educational video to talk about an actual case that's going on right now that involves two young women who tragically were murdered in their early teens back in 2017. This case racked, rocketed back up to international notoriety uh, last week when the defense team for Richard Allen filed a 135-page memorandum arguing that the search warrant was granted improperly, that evidence seized from Richard Allen's home should be suppressed, and that they had explanations for the other evidence that was laid against Mr. Allen. It is quite literally the most ripped from the headlines case that we've ever actually covered on this show. And the fascinating part about it is once we get to the conclusion about the maneuvering with what Richard's defense team is doing, it might actually work at the end of the day. And that's the fascinating concept that brings it back to the educational concept for what defense attorneys do and why this is an important case for us to look at at this time. I love I love that we're going to get to get two big things so, out of talking about this case today of, of the murder of these two young girls is, is yes, the, the window into the world of defense attorneys, which obviously this show is is meant to provide. It's closing arguments after all, but also the very riveting story, which folks, full disclosure, Jack has been withholding a lot of this information from me, uh, you know, in advance of us sitting down to record this because there's going to be a shock factor to it. There's a lot of interesting variables at play in this case. Uh, so Jack, let's get into it. Set the scene. Uh, let's get boots on the ground in the case. Sure. The scene for our case today is Delphi, Indiana. Delphi, Indiana is the county seat of Carroll County, Indiana. Population of Delphi is just shy of 3,000 people. Carroll County itself is a total population of just barely over 20,000 people. Those are, those are per, per the census that we just took a couple of years back. It's about an hour northwest, hour, hour, 15 minutes northwest of Indianapolis, kind of the sleepy Midwestern town that you would normally see in any Midwestern state. There's, you know, it's not the type of place that you would expect major things to happen. It's just quiet. People know their neighbors. That all changed in 2017. On February 13th, 2017, 13-year-old Abigail Williams and 14-year-old Liberty German were walking the Delphi Historic Trails when they disappeared. 
Their bodies were discovered the following day on February 14th near the Monon High Bridge. Unfortunately, they had been murdered. Now, this case ended up gathering a lot of national attention for two very important reasons, in my opinion. The first was that the police were, even for the police, extremely quiet and extremely circumspect with regards to releasing any details about the case. Normally, in a homicide investigation, you have important details like, you know, how were the bodies found? What was the cause of death? Um, what clues may or may not have been found there. Absolute radio silence on this one. There was no discussion at any point in time as to what the cause of death was for these two girls, what state their bodies were found in, or or really anything that might have been located. And that's going to be a key important point that we'll come back to when we discuss what Richard Allen's defense team has been doing with regards to establishing their defenses and establishing the methodology that they're looking at to try to argue that there is reasonable doubt in this. The second- yeah, that's really interesting because that's pretty basic. That's pretty basic information that you would think would be listed in you know a case file, so to speak. So, wow. All right. So we're already we're, we're starting out on a hot foot. So Jack, keep rolling. What? Uh, why does this case kind of really turn over uh, and, and start gaining more attention as it uh, well? The other thing the that picture? really, really got a lot of attention on this case moving forward was the fact that eventually, as the police did slowly release aspects of the case, aspects of things that they needed to try to get assistance in, the single most important thing that came out of this was there was a rather chilling video that was taken by Liberty German herself, one of the two murdered girls, that many believed to be a recording of her actual killer. There was a very short snippet of video and audio as Abby and Libby were walking on the bridge. Um, They're doing the normal teenager stuff. They're recording themselves being silly, talking about what they're seeing. And they pass a man... And one of the girls starts mumbling something about seeing a gun. And Liberty, who's got her smartphone, angles her phone to try to get a picture of the man that they think is suspicious and following them. And during that process, you can hear a man's voice on the phone telling them, okay, guys, down the hill. And that was the last known recorded communication from either Abby or Libby they very well may have recorded their own murderer kidnapping them. And once that got released to the public at large, that's when the entire cottage industry took over. That's where you got your your, um, Wikipedia pages, your Reddits, your subreddits, your true crime reviews. That's not something that happens in a small town like Delphi. And it's the juxtaposition of the quiet, sleepy town that something like this isn't supposed to happen in with the completely horrific concept that it clearly did happen. And those two things combined, the the, the lack of communication from the police about anything that had to do with this case outside of an identification and an awareness that, yes, we found the girls. Yes, they were murdered. Yes, here is a recording that we think might be the murderer, and here's a photo that we think of the murderer. That's all there was from 2017 through 2022. Five and a half years this case was considered to be a cold case. Then interesting things started happening. At some point in time in October, the case became active again. The Police Department, the the Carroll County Sheriff's Office, the Indiana State Troopers um, began focusing on an individual by the name of Richard Allen. Now, Richard Allen was a lifelong resident of the state of Indiana. He'd been living in Delphi since 2006. He had actually been interviewed by the police back in 2017 regarding his movements, regarding whether or not he had anything Uh, had any knowledge or any information that he could report about this. That by itself isn't uncommon. I'm pretty sure that in the grand scheme of things, law enforcement probably interviewed nearly everybody who lived in Delphi about this case. Again, you have a population of under 3,000 people. And that under 3,000 people also includes, you know, infants and children and elementary school students. You know, everyone that could be interviewed about this case was interviewed. 
and then five and a half years go by, you know? Correct. So there, mm -hmm. this is a wild amount of time, especially for a sample size of a town that is so small for something like this to not have, you know, the squeaky wheel, nothing comes out for five and a half years. Man, it's fascinating. So, so what, what really changed? Where, where along the line did we turn towards, towards Richard Allen? You're saying. That is an excellent question that I don't really have a good answer for. There are portions of this case that are still sealed is the wrong way of putting it, but there are still portions of this case that have not really been made widely public knowledge. One of which is the search warrant application that it will eventually come to dominate this, this case overall. The police had a second interview with Richard Allen and his wife on October 13th of 2022. Following that interview, uh, the Carroll County Sheriff, um, Tony Liggett, applied for and was granted a search warrant for Richard Allen's house. That search warrant, while available to the defense, to the best of my knowledge, is not available to the public at large. That's not necessarily out of the ordinary. If you'll recall from earlier episodes and early discussions we have, we've had uh, evidence that is released from the state. They have to turn their evidence over to the defense. The defense is typically not allowed to simply take that information and just kind of put it everywhere. And while court files are public record, so anything that's filed into the court record is considered to be publicly available, search warrants are always filed under seal for very obvious reasons. You, you don't really want the subject of an investigation, especially something like a search warrant, to know in advance that the police are coming to look for them. That's typically a bad sign. Uh, it gives them the opportunity to destroy evidence. It gives them the opportunity to further hide evidence. Um, so search warrants themselves are, are filed under a different system. They're not publicly available. And when they're turned over to um, defense attorneys, usually like the, the value of putting that up on a website or holding a press conference over a random search warrant, not terribly high. There's not a lot of value in with this case specifically, and this will be one of the things we talk about soon, there's actually a gag order that was issued by the court controlling what the defense attorneys could say in public. It also controls what the prosecutors can say in public. And part of that, I believe, also does cover disclosure of what is in the search warrant, disclosure of what they can and can't say. I believe in preparing my notes for today's trial, I do believe that at least some media outlets did have copies uh, or at least redacted copies likely of the search warrant. So it is probably out there somewhere. Um, I will continue to look for it and provide updates, but whatever happened that led them to believe that Richard Allen is now the focus of the investigation is one of those things that's been kept relatively close to the chest. It's an important thing, though, because the state's case, based off of representations made by the superintendent of the Indiana State Police, um, the sheriff of Carroll County, other law enforcement officers involved in this, is that this murder was a one-man job. The determination was that Richard Allen was the only person acting in uh, regards to this killing. He was the only killer. Um, and they got their search warrant based off of representations that Richard Allen was the only person who was responsible for this killing. So that factored into it. During the search of Richard Allen's house on October 13th, 2022, among the things that was removed from the house was a Sig Sauer P226 firearm. The reason that's important is one of the things that it turns out was located near the bodies of Abby and Libby was an unspent 40 caliber bullet, 40 caliber handgun bullet. This is, again, one of those things that the police kept very close to their chest. So at this point in time, you know, there were suspicion maybe the girls were shot and for some reason they weren't telling anyone about that. Um, but they kept the existence of this bullet secret up to this point. The Indiana State Police Ballistics Lab rushed a forensic examination of the firearm, and their conclusion was that the, uh, un that, the, that the bullet that was recovered by the two bodies was, as they put it, cycled through this particular handgun. 
And what that means is their argument is that when the bullet was ejected from the slide of Richard Allen's gun, they're arguing that certain casings were left on the bullet. Um, sorry, not certain markings were left on the bullet, on the bullet casing. And that was sufficient to tie Richard Allen to the murder in the eyes of the state. Now, that type of evidence is not great. Let's, let's just be perfectly honest about mm-hmm. that. Um, the science of ballistics, there, there are a lot of forensic sciences that as technology has moved on, as um, techniques have gotten better, have come into some degree of suspicion. Uh, ballistics is one of them. But there's a difference between the rifling that you get on a bullet once it's fired and and leaves a gun barrel versus the argument that there's some sort of marking that is going to affect what is ejected from the slide of, of a gun on an unfired, unspent bullet. Beyond that, it's not necessarily a crime. Well, okay, it's technically littering, but beyond littering, it's not necessarily a crime to have a bullet in the area of where another crime is discovered. It's an extremely unfortunate circumstance, but that by itself is not necessarily enough to get a conviction. It was, however, enough to actually file criminal charges. And on October 26, 2022, Richard Allen was taken into custody, and two days later, on October 28, 2022, he was charged in Carroll Circuit Court, state of Indiana, with two counts of murder. The first count was an allegation that he intentionally killed uh, Abigail Williams during the act of a uh, of the commission of a crime, more specifically kidnapping. And uh, count two, uh, the second murder charge, is basically an identical copy of the first one, with substituting Liberty uh, Liberty German's name for Abigail Williams. Uh, the idea being that Richard Allen intentionally killed Liberty German. Um, while committing another criminal act, more specifically kidnapping. So you have a two-count information that's filed against them based off of the strength of certainly the ballistic firearms. That was one of the big things that the state was relying on. And the second general concept on it was whatever private or personal information that they're keeping close to the chest for why they turned their attention towards Richard Allen in the first place. So... Like I said, that in that and of itself, like another one of the major pieces that has developed, though, that is a much stronger piece of evidence for the state's case in this regard is that on June 15th, it was revealed, uh, June 15th of 2023, I suppose I should probably mention that, um, it was revealed in open court that Richard Allen had allegedly confessed no less than five times in recorded telephone calls to his wife and to his mother at the Westville Correctional Facility where he was being held, that he was responsible for murdering these two girls. So the state's evidence at this point in time, at least the state's evidence that that is more publicly available for us to see than anything else, is relying on this firearm that supposedly is responsible for making markings on an unshot bullet and the much stronger confession that was allegedly made on at least five different occasions at a correctional facility. And that's going to be an important thing for us to look at later in this case is how that confession may or may not be usable and how that confession may impact what the defense strategy is moving forward with regards mm-hmm. to discussing how they're going to resolve the charges. Yeah, no, this is this is great. I appreciate you the great kind of illustration of the scene, especially going through the evidence against Richard Allen. Uh, you know, a lot of logistics behind this case, obviously being held behind closed doors, not available for that public consumption. It's very piecemeal what we are getting and what we have available for us from an analytical perspective. But let's take the next step then, Jack, as as things move into court. Why don't you set the scene for how how it all began in court and where things started to go a little awry? Things kind of started to go awry almost from day one. Um, Again, this is an incredibly infamous unsolved murder 
that happened in a small community in the middle of America. And for five and a half years, it has had all the appearances of being a cold case. Then out of the blue, without any previous announcement, without any previous suspicion that the police and law enforcement were getting anywhere, they've made an arrest. To say that Carroll County was unprepared for the amount of attention that was going to descend on them would be an understatement. And, and, and that's nothing against Carroll County. Again, we're talking about a county with a total population of, of 20,000 people. You know, the adult population's probably, you know, maybe a little over half of that. Um, and it's not like the entire adult population works for the court system. Uh, the Carroll County has uh, one court, you know, all courts, all 92 counties in the state of Indiana are constitutionally required to have one court. So that's what Carroll County has as one circuit court. Um, there's a staff of, I believe, maybe five employees at the at the courthouse. Um, and you just drop in the middle of their lap an internationally famous unsolved murder case with five and a half years of people coming up with their own theories, their own um, ideas for what happened. There were what tip lines wrong? on this case. <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong? Oh my exactly. gosh. You're just, you're asking for uh, just a whirlwind, you know, choose yeah. your noun, but just an absolute whirlwind. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were tip lines set up on this case and there were tips coming in as far away from Australia. I mean, that's, that's how internationally, oh how much international attention was on this case. So it, it gets filed into a County that I think wanted, I think that the County wanted to try to treat this like any other case, which is exactly how you should be doing these things. These cases should be treated no differently from anything else in the system. Once you start treating certain cases in different ways, um, you're now picking, I, I want to say picking winners and losers, but you are creating a situation where uneven treatment makes it difficult to guarantee that you're getting a full and fair outcome with even, with, with even keelness on this. The first mistake, in my opinion, that the court did is the prosecutor filed the prosecutor initially filed the charging information of the probable cause affidavit under seal. Um, and, and getting back to our discussion with regards to um, getting back to our discussion with regards to to the search warrants, you can file court documents under seal if you have a justifiable reason for it. There's legal exception that goes into it. Um, and I think that what they were trying to do is they were at least tangentially aware that there was going to be a media firestorm that came in with this. The problem is, Probable cause affidavits, once charges are filed, really need extremely good reasons to remain under seal. And, and one of the rumors – and part of the reason for that is under Indiana State Constitution, the courts are open to public access. If you wanted you – know, if, if your neighbor in Indiana was under arrest for vandalism and you wanted to go down to the courthouse and pull his record, even if he didn't want you to see what he was alleged to have done, you can do that. That is, that is a constitutional guarantee to all citizens of Indiana is like our access to the court records um, with a couple of exceptions is, is pretty open, pretty unlimited. One of the things that can be done to seal an investigation, not seal, uh, I apologize. One of the things that can be done to file a probable cause affidavit under seal is if the argument is there is an ongoing investigation into possible co-defendants or a possible conspiracy, and if this information is made public, that is going to uh, scare off those other potential defendants. That, I think, is what the prosecution wanted the public to believe. And, and again, I can't speak for them. I, I obviously had no input on their decision-making processes, strategizing on it, but I could see that being potentially what they wanted the public to believe because that would allow for them to kind of control the information flow, kind of again, keep it from becoming a media circus. The problem is that made it a bigger circus. A again, you've got a five and a half year cold case 
that you've suddenly made an arrest out of nowhere without a lot of the normal press conferences, statements of, hey, we're getting close or we have some ideas here. You don't get access to the probable cause affidavit. Most people in the press, most people online, we immediately went to the concept like, oh my God, there are more people out there. There are more killers. Um, and again, none of this is helped by the fact that it's still not clear at this point why we're focusing on Richard Allen in the first place. So the conspiracy mill just went into overdrive. And anytime there's a good conspiracy, that's when the press is going to descend on a place. And descend, did they? Um, I, I'm not going to say that the press in, I, I'm not going to say that the presence of the press raised the population of Carroll County by half, but they probably did a good job of trying. I mean, there were <laughs> there were reporters from as far away as Great Britain here to cover this case. Wow. Wow. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, you're not kidding when it comes to international exposure, so much so that they're willing to send a correspondent overseas to yeah. be able to take a look at this. I mean, yeah, that this this poor town, you know, of Delphi. I mean, wow, wow, wow. Uh, so so I know I know there's a there's a, a recusal that ends up happening in this process. Jack, I know you're you're, you know leading us down the trail towards that. But uh, I know that's kind of a big, a big turning point, if you will set the scene on that, if you can. Sure. As I said, you know, Carroll County is an extremely small county. Um, one of the things that if you look at the way that an Indiana cause number is written out, the last six numbers in the cause number, the sequential ordering of uh, how many of that type of case has been filed in, 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 in any individual calendar year. This case was filed as a murder case in October of 2022. It was quite literally the first murder filed in Carroll County during the entirety of 2022. That's how small, that's how sleepy, that's how, generally speaking, safe this county is. So based off of the, the amount of coverage, the amount of tension, and frankly, the amount of manpower that was necessary to supervise and manage and organize a case of this type, uh, Judge Benjamin De uh, Diener of the, uh, the Carroll Circuit Court made the determination that he simply lacked the resources to be able to do this. Uh, between courthouse security, um, between requests for uh, for attention, between the work that he had to do on other matters, the decision was made to recuse him, and he requested that the Indiana Supreme Court appoint a special, excuse me, appoint a special judge to oversee the trial moving forward. And there are a handful of different reasons that uh, that that this can be done or how this can be accomplished. As a practical matter, uh, judges have an unlimited personal discretion as to recusing themselves from a case if they believe that it is appropriate for them to do so. Like if they believe that there is a potential conflict, um, most judges will err on the side of caution and say, hey, um, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to recuse myself from this case because, you know, I, you know, went to school with this defendant and you know, I don't want there to be any sign of impropriety. There are also some mandatory situations where a judge might have to recuse themselves. Uh, for example, if uh, if I ever became a judge and one of the one of the people that I've represented in my private practice came before me as a criminal defendant on a future matter, like I would legally be required to recuse myself from that case. That would be part of the judicial canons. This is what would be referred to as a discretionary uh, recusal. Judge uh, Judge Diener um, believed that other uh, that another judge would be better equipped and better capable of handling this, uh, so he wrote directly to the Indiana Supreme Court. Most smaller counties, especially counties of Carroll County size, where they've got just the one judge, they will usually have written into their local procedural rules what the policy is and what the procedure is for the appointment of a special judge. Um, and that's designed to make sure that, um, you know, if, if the judge of Carroll County is, is unavailable, um, you know, here's the procedure from getting one of the judges from a neighboring county to uh, pitch in and help. Uh, in this particular case, bypassing the rules, Judge Diener asked the Indiana Supreme Court directly, you choose and appoint a special judge. And I think that was partially in recognition of the fact that with a case of this type, 
you probably would need a judge from a larger, more metropolitan county who, for better or for worse, probably is going to be a little bit better equipped to deal with the issues surrounding um, high-profile homicides like this. Yeah, and and with the onslaught of media that's there as well, somebody that's probably equipped to handle cases of that magnitude that have kind of walked that walk before, if you will. So I can, I can see why this decision was, was kind of made, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on here to say the least. Right. So the Indiana Supreme court ended up appointing um, Allen superior court judge uh, Francis Gull to oversee the case. She's been overseeing it uh, ever since. Allen County is, I believe, the third largest county in the state of Indiana. It's either the third or the fourth largest county in the state of Indiana. Um, it's It's got a sizable population. It's got a lot more experience, unfortunately, dealing with offenses of this type. It's right off of uh, Interstate 69, so there is... Um, you know, there, there will be sometimes trafficking, uh, that goes through that area. So, uh, judge Gull was appointed to oversee this case moving forward. And once judge Gull got involved in this case, that's where things started stabilizing a little bit more with regards to kind of controlling, uh, some access points, uh, releasing others. One of the first things that ended up happening on this case is as you can imagine, um, Richard Allen lacked anything approaching resources to be able to defend himself against an internationally notorious criminal charge. Uh, so he did request the appointment of a public defender, and uh, Judge Gull did appoint uh, two attorneys. Uh, she appointed uh, defense attorneys Brad Rossi and Andrew Baldwin uh, to represent Richard Allen in this case. Now, Neither of those attorneys are actually native to Delphi or to Carroll County. Um, Attorney Baldwin, who I know professionally, I I have actually met Andrew on a couple of professional instances. Uh, He has a, I know his reputation. He is an excellent defense attorney. He is, his, his primary office is in Franklin, Indiana, which is about 30 minutes south of um attorney uh Rossi, who i don't know i don't know that i've ever met him if i did uh, i apologize to brad if he ends up watching this at some point in time um his offices are in logansport uh, logansport is about an hour ish eh, maybe about 45 minutes due north of delphi again that goes back to the concept of how small carroll county is you know it's not that they don't have attorneys in carroll county it's just again for a case of this type to ensure that Richard Allen was getting the most effective assistance to counsel that he could possibly get, they had to go outside of the county. And, and that's a recurring theme with this is outside of the county because, again, and I hate to keep going back to this, this is not the type of place where something like this happens. Everyone's unprepared for what's involved with this type of a situation, including the Carroll County Sheriff. One of the things that the Carroll County Sheriff's Office did, if you are charged with a criminal offense, and if you are not able to post bail or be released on your own recognizance while your case is going forward, which as a practical matter, they typically don't let you out if you're charged with murder, you are held in the county jail pending trial, which means that the county that your case is being heard in, which in this case would be Carroll County. The Carroll County Sheriff made a motion with the judge to have Richard Allen housed elsewhere for security purposes. The concern of the Carroll County Sheriff was that he was unable to provide adequate security for the most notorious alleged murderer in Carroll County history. There were concerns that his uh, his safety couldn't be guaranteed, that he'd have to be held in solitary confinement, which is largely considered to be cruel and unusual punishment after a certain period of time, um, for those purposes. So Judge Gull signed an order that directed um, Richard Allen to be held at the Westfield Correctional Facility, which is a Department of Corrections facility. And I don't think in any of our previous episodes, we really talked about the difference between prison and jail. Prison, the Indiana Department of Corrections runs prisons. 
that's where you go after you've been convicted. There are no people in prison that enjoy the presumption of innocence. Everyone there is quite literally guilty. That is the function of it. So into this, for security purposes, we put Richard Allen, again, a man who at least enjoys the presumption of innocence, whether we want to give a great deal of credence to or not, he enjoys that presumption of innocence. And that's where he's being held. He's being held in, in a maximum security wing, ostensibly for his safety. This, again, is going to be one of the things that becomes important when we discuss the Franks filing that the defense team made uh, to challenge the validity of the search warrant. But those are two major things that happen kind of up front. The third thing that happened pretty quickly is that um, Richard Allen's defense attorneys made a motion for a change of venue. Under both the state and federal constitutions, the default presumption is that a crime is to be tried in the county where it happened. That's referred to as venue. So if a crime happens in Indianapolis, the venue is Marion County. If the crime happens in Carmel, the venue is Hamilton County, and so on and so forth. Since the crime is alleged to have happened in Delphi, the default venue is Carroll County. The problem is the second part of the venue is that you are entitled to a fair and impartial jury in the venue where the crime is alleged to have happened. Uh, so again, for a small town. Mm -hmm, again, yep. we have a county. The entire county has a population of just over 20,000 people. You know, you yep. assume that maybe two-thirds of them at best are of the appropriate age to serve on a jury international attention the press has descended on on delphi like it's iowa during a presidential primary season there's <laughs> no one that doesn't know about this case everyone right, in delphi right. knows about this everyone in carroll county knows about this people in australia know about this right right and there's no way that anybody could sit there and say that they haven't had conversations with x y or z individual that have steered them towards one school of thought or another there's just no way. Correct. So during hearings on the matter, the determination was that uh, Judge Gold made the ruling. And and I don't know. I All I can review, the only thing that I have access to, I have access to the chronological case summary. I have access to uh, whatever filings have been made publicly available. Um, and, and specifics of, of what arguments were or were not made at any given point in time. I may not have that. So I don't know how much of an argument the, the Carroll County Prosecutor's Office put up regarding whether or not they thought they could get a fair jury in this. But Judge Gold did agree that there would, it, would not be cap it would not be possible to impanel a fair and impartial jury from the citizens of Carroll County. Now, what normally happens in these cases is if you have a change of venue, you – change the venue it's 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 literally right there in the name you just go somewhere else and you hold the trial for whatever reason and i am not privy to the judge's reasoning on this or or why she made this determination the decision was to leave the venue itself in carroll county what was ordered by the court was that we would import jurors from another county, bus them to Carroll County to hear the trial, and then presumably, God, I would hope so, at least bus them back to their county of origin. And for this particular set of circumstances, the decision that was made was that they would import jurors from Allen County. If you recall from a few moments ago, Allen County is where Judge Gull has her courtroom. Mm. So when the change of venue was granted, it was expected that for ease and convenience, Judge Gull would probably move the case to Allen County. That didn't quite happen in a traditional sense. Um, Judge Gull really just seems to be bringing Allen County to Carroll County, which – Again, that's that's a two-hour trip, so you're I, I, we're we're far enough from the jury trial right now as as we're recording this. It's unclear 
how the jury selection process is going to go. Is the jury selection process going to take place in Allen County? And then when you have your 12 jurors and your two alternates, they're bused to Carroll County. Are they going to bus, you know, 150 plus prospective jurors from Allen County to Carroll County, do the jury selection in Carroll County, and then take everybody back home at the end of the day? It, it raises a lot of logistical questions that are going to be fascinating um, to determine how all of this process is going to work moving forward um, with regards right. to, to, to how it's organized, how it's scheduled. Sure. So a lot of logistical variables at play here. Uh, but, you know, Jack, you said it to me before we sat down to record the episode today. Uh, the defense in this instance went and the word you used was nuclear. Talk to me about where the defense goes nuclear, and I think that would be a great way. I mean, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, look, there is there's a lot to get into, and in the defense's uh, recent actions, it's created a whole whirlwind on top of a whirlwind that already was for this case. So we're going to be splitting today's episode into a kind of a two-part series, if you will. But Jack, set us up for this second part of the episode, and what does what do you mean by the defense going nuclear, and how does that really just open up a uh, just a wildfire for uh, for kind of the media as well as anybody that was interested in this case. So here's kind of what happened. Everything that we just discussed all takes place within the first two-ish months of the case. The case is filed in October. Um, the public defenders are appointed. The case is filed in October. Judge Denier, I, I can't remember if I, I mentioned like the specific time on it. Judge Denier... Uh, or Diener, I apologize. Um, he's a he's a nice judge. I've met him. Um, judge Diener recused himself six days after this case was filed. So you know all this stuff that we're talking about is moving very quickly. So Judge Gull comes in six days after the case is filed. Um, she appoints the public defender. She authorizes um, the uh, she authorizes uh, that Richard Allen be housed in the Westfield Correctional Facility. Um, the initial gag orders are issued in December, uh, that allow for people to actually start seeing the probable cause affidavit, or at least a redacted version of it. Um, and other things that the defense started doing during this time frame with the change of venue, these are again, relatively short. Also going on during this time period is the defense has filed a number of what are referred to as ex parte motions for investigation fees. One of the things that a defendant is entitled to is a defendant can request that the court hold an ex parte hearing. That's a, that's a hearing where only one of the two sides is present. So in this particular case, it would be an ex parte hearing by the defense for the purposes of securing funds for uh, expert witnesses, private investigators, uh, toxicologists. Uh, we've we've used that system in the past to get toxicologists in DUI cases. Um, the reason that it's an ex parte proceeding is you have to, as the defense, justify this is why we want this investigator. And very clearly, you don't want your opponent to know what your trial strategy is. Again, same general concept with, you know, the police don't want search warrants out there. The defense doesn't want their investigation strategy laid out for the prosecution. So the defense was making ex parte motions for uh, investigators, expert witnesses. Uh, I believe that it's a little bit vague, but I know that some of them were granted. And these investigators started digging a little bit more into the background of the case. Remember, the defense actually has the search warrant application. The defense actually has access to the the yards and yards of documents regarding all the various anonymous tips, all the investigations, all of the recorded interviews that were done back in 2017, subsequent interviews that were done and recorded. These are all being reviewed by the defense and their, and their, um, and their investigators. And what the defense ended up doing is they started to come up with a theory of the case that pointed in the exact opposite direction of Richard Allen. They came up with a theory that this was not a one-man crime, that this was, in fact, a large group of people, two or more, that were involved in this crime. 
and most troubling of all from the perspective of what the defense chose to do next the defense made the decision that they, they their conclusion from their investigation from their review of all the materials that were turned over to them by the state the defense made the conclusion that the carroll county sheriff tony liggett the man who applied for the search warrant to search richard allen's house that located the gun that they say cycled the spent bullet casing that was found at the scene of abby and libby's bodies their conclusion was that the sheriff either intentionally misled intentionally withheld or with reckless disregard to the truth lied on the search warrant application that is like throwing a hand grenade into a church there are very clear lines that once you cross them it's hard to walk back from and if you as a defense attorney are going to stand in front of a judge and point the finger at any law enforcement officer let alone like the top law enforcement officer of the county and say that man lied on a search warrant application you'd better be able to back it up and you'd better be able to have something that you can work with and interestingly enough i think they actually do Mm. and the reason that we chose this as an as a topic for this episode and the next episode is the actions of the defense right now they've requested what's referred to as a frank's hearing and very briefly because a frank's hearing probably is one of those things that could deserve its own episode in our more traditional way of handling this a frank's hearing is based off of it's referred to as frank's hearing it's based off of the the supreme court case uh, franks versus delaware effectively it is an attempt by the defense to attack the issuance of a search warrant um people have a mistaken impression as to what search warrants are because the media doesn't really do a good job of explaining it maybe we'll explain it at some point in time i guess we're technically part of the media but a search warrant application is basically a probable cause affidavit filed by law enforcement that tells a judge i want to search this place for these items and this is why if the defense believes that the search warrant application was the product of lying or withholding information you can attack the issuance of the search warrant based off of uh, of those accusations as referred to as a frank's hearing that is technically different from arguing that a search warrant is otherwise defective, such as it was overbroad or not narrow enough. That is another way of attacking a search warrant, but that's much more of a traditional, you haven't called out anybody on it. When you go to a Frank's Mm -hmm. hearing, you have literally just said they're lying. And that is a hell of a thing to say. And that's what we're gonna look at on our next episode, because the argument that Richard Allen's defense team has come up with to to justify their statement that the search warrant was illegally obtained well they say that fiction has to make sense real life rarely does Mm -hmm. and it'll be interesting to kind of go over what the defense is alleging what is reasonable out of that it's it's going to be it's it's going to be fascinating that's really about all i can tell you on Folks, for for anybody that isn't aware of this case, I'm sure after listening to today's episode, you're probably going to jump on Google and look up some things. You know, we you know we hope that you uh, maybe subside that curiosity for just a little bit. Obviously, we're going to be back with our next episode, doing a second part on this case. And meanwhile, just to go back to it, Jack and I had mentioned at the beginning, this is an ongoing case. There is still you know, factors of this case that are coming out. So by the time that we get around and we record our, our next episode to, to, you know, really capture the essence of this case as a whole, there could be new developments and fun things for us to share with you guys that'll uh, help shed some more light on what has become a unbelievably interesting case that again, is just getting international attention. So, uh, you know, Jack, truth, 
truth might be stranger than fiction here, uh, you know, as we as we examine the case of the, the state of Indiana against uh, Richard Allen. Like I said, this is outside of our normal episode format because this is an active case that is going on right now. It is admittedly highly, highly improbable that anyone that's listening to this podcast is going to end up selected for the jury on this case. Because it is an ongoing case, I do want to caution anyone who's listening that Richard Allen does still enjoy the presumption of innocence. He has not been convicted of anything. Um, At the same time, the prosecution has some pretty good arguments as well. Admittedly, that recorded telephone call where he's making admissions to killing the girls, that's pretty powerful. So this case, both sides do have arguments. Um, I've obviously got my own biases as a defense attorney because I'm inherently skeptical of everything. Um, but we don't have all the information. We, we legitimately don't. There could be information that law enforcement has that is simply not available to us as the, as the public. So I don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking, oh, my God, you know, the, the state is absolutely steamrolling this person. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want you to walk away with the general concept of, oh, man, the defense has this in a bag. What a stupid case for the state to bring. We just don't know yet, and, and we're not going to know for a long time. And even once the trial is done, I don't know that anyone's ever going to have an answer that's going to be satisfactory. I mean, at the end of the day the only person who legitimately truly knows whether or not he was involved with this murder is Richard Allen. Um, so, you know, enjoy the episodes, come back to, to see the conclusion. Um, but as always keep an open mind, you know, this case isn't done by a long shot and, you know, instead of talking about history, we're talking about stuff that's happening right now. And, you know, kind of, it's interesting. It's it's definitely a change of pace, and it'll be interesting to see how this one ends up playing out. Absolutely. So, folks, make sure you stay tuned to Closing Arguments as we come back on our next episode, do a part two, share kind of the interesting, uh, you know, aftermath, if you will, of the Frank's motion in this case, and, of course, where we sit today with new developments that will be coming out uh, since, the you know, the, the day of us sitting down to record this episode here. But also, folks, we want to take one final moment, as we always do, and thank you guys for stopping by and spending some time with us on the show today. If you did take anything away from today's discussion, you enjoyed this case, uh, you know, make sure you hit that subscribe button on whichever platform you check this out on that way you never miss out on a future conversation between jack and myself where we share interesting tidbits and lessons about the the world of, of jack as a defense attorney or just case studies interesting cases that have made their mark on history and how we operate as a court system today before jack i'm ryan we're gonna go ahead and say so long today but we appreciate you stopping by and being with us on closing arguments 